The Soul's Cordial, in two treatises, first, teaching how to be eased of the guilt of sin. By that faithful laborer in the Lord's Vineyard, Mr. Christopher Love, pastor of Lawrence Jury, London, the third volume. <clears throat> Job 33, 27 and 28, He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned, and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Romans eight thirty three and 34, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. To the reader. Thou art here presented with two treatises of the late pious and faithful minister of the gospel, Mr. Christopher Love. They come to thy view in an unpolished style, as they were taken from the mouth of the reverend author, whose endeavor it was to pierce the conscience rather than to please the ear. A garish dress is unbefitting a chaste matron. If thou expect here what may be pleasing to a wanton appetite, stay at the threshold. Thou wilt lose thy labor if thy stomach be for wholesome food and doctrine. According to godliness, enter in. This diet is for hungry souls. The first part will show thee how thou must proceed to obtain and assure thy heart of pardon of sin. That is, by a sound confession. This duty is much decried in these days of libertinism, but by such as decry the power of godliness and are loath to have a check put upon their licentiousness. But do thou remember that he, he that hideth his sin shall not prosper. He that confesseth and forsaketh it shall find mercy. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and make God a liar. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. Pardon of sin is the purchase of the blood of Christ, but entailed upon the confession of sin. The latter will show thee thy great advantage by Christ's ascension, intercession, and return to judgment. This is a subject most suitable for the last times, times of peril and temptation, to quiet, comfort, and encourage, to keep the heart in the love of God, in the patient waiting for Christ, and unspotted in the world. We have much talk in the world that Christ's person shall reign for 1,000 years upon earth. He that can see this in Scripture hath a clearer sight than I, but whatever becomes of this opinion we are sure of, and stay our souls upon this, that our blessed Savior is now at the right hand of God in glory, pleading the cause of his despised servants, waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. From whence we expect him at that great day to transform our vile bodies <clears throat> into the similitude of his glorious body, to take us into these mansions prepared for us, that we may see his glory and be forever with the Lord. 
These meditations, if they were often in our minds, would engage us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because our labor is not in vain in the Lord. One thing more I'd advertise thee, that in the perusing of these little treatises, thou wilt meet with many typographical errors. For these the printer craves thy pardon. Farewell. J. Cranford, pastor of Christopher's Lestocks. Sermon 1. Text, Psalm 32, latter part of the fifth verse. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. This psalm treats of the blessedness of a justified, of a pardoned sinner, touching which several particulars are handled. First, the psalmist handles wherein the forgiveness of sin consists, that he mentions under two expressions. Verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The forgiveness of sin consists first in the covering of sin. The covering of sin, not from God, but by God. So it is explained by God himself, Psalm 85, verse 2, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. It is sin in us to hide our sins, as it is sin to hide our talents. So it is sin to hide our sin. Therefore, when the psalmist saith the forgiveness of sin consists in the covering of sin, this covering by God is understood. Secondly, this forgiveness is set out by not imputing of sin. Verse 2. Sin shall not be imputed unto a justified person, though still it shall be inherent in him. Secondly, the psalmist shows the character of that man whose sin is pardoned. Verse 2. Blessed is the man. in whose spirit there is no guile. Thirdly, here is laid down the happiness of a pardoned man, nothing hindering his happiness. Verse 3, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Yet for all this, David calls him blessed. Though God's hand was heavy upon him, yet his heart was still towards him. Yet a blessed man, though an afflicted man. Fourthly, here's laid down the course that the psalmist took to procure a pardon of sin. That is in my text. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Thus I have brought you by the hand to the text. I shall give you a short paraphrase of the words. I said, this word implies in scripture phrase three things. First, it notes a deliberation or consideration of the mind. Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. That is, he hath a thought so in his mind that there is no God. Psalm 30, verse 6, And in my prosperity I said I shall never be moved. That is, I thought so. Saying is not always an act of the tongue, but sometimes of the mind. I said I will confess my sin. That is, I have bethought myself and considered in my mind that it is meet for me to get pardon and to confess my sin to God. I said, it notes, secondly, the purpose and the resolution of the will. So you have it, Psalm 119, verse 57. Thou art my portion, O Lord, I have said that I would keep thy words. Their saying is explained to be purposing or resolving of the will. 
Thirdly, I said it implies the execution or practice of what the mind resolves upon. Psalm 39, verse 1. I said, I will take heed to my ways, etc. I am put upon the practice of taking care unto my steps and to my ways. The meaning of the phrase is this. I said, I will confess my transgression. I have bethought it so in my mind that it is good and meet to do so. I have purposed and resolved in my will and am actually put on the practice of it. I said I will confess my transgression. It is worth your notice that sin is expressed by three words in this text. First, transgression. Secondly, iniquity. And thirdly, sin. I will confess my transgression and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. There are but four places in Scripture wherein these three words are joined together in one verse. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Exodus 34, verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Micah 7, verse 18, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Leviticus 16, verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and and all their sins, etc. And it is likewise used in Job 13, verse 23, How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. In these four places, the words are used in Scripture and in my text, but not else, as I remember throughout the Word of God. And because these three words are here used, interpreters take much pains to find out uh, some material direction between them. Here is transgression, sin, and iniquity. I have consulted with many, and the truest account I can give you is this. Transgression signifies in the Hebrew rebellion. Say interpreters, it it notes sin with all extensions and aggravations. Sin increased to a great height. Secondly, sin signifies in the Hebrew evils that are of of the lesser degree, that are not so heinous, and so notes only by sin evils of infirmity and common incursion. Thirdly, iniquity signifies sin of nature, that pravity of nature wherein a man was born. But, but grammarians in the Latin do distinguish these words otherwise. Iniquity they make to be that which is done against another man. Sin, that which is done against a man's self. And transgression, that which is done immediately against God. But beloved, the scripture in many places makes them all one. Therefore, we need not make further curious inquiry after the distinction of these words. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, the iniquity of my sin. There is some disagreement about the sense of these words, what it is for God to forgive the iniquity of sin. By the iniquity of sin, some do understand the punishment that sin deserves. The Hebrew word that signifies iniquity signifies punishment. The same word here is spoken of Cain. My punishment is greater than I can bear. There is the same word. 
Therefore, in some translations, it is read thus, Thou forgavest the punishment of my sin. Secondly, others here do understand by the iniquity of sin, with whom I do concur, sin with all its aggravations, with all its heinous circumstances, sin with all its malignity, Thou didst forgive the iniquity of all my sins. Most interpreters go this way, and so to make the phrase to be very emphatical, Thou hast forgiven me my sin. That is, all heinous circumstances that might greaten my sin, Thou hast forgiven them all. I shall only make a short entrance at this time into the first part of my text. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. These words contain in them a holy purpose in the psalmist, to set on the practice of necessary and Christian duty, to wit, secret confession of sin to God. In them, five parts are observable. First, the duty itself, confession. Secondly, a deliberate purpose to get on the practice of this duty. I said thirdly, the subject matter of this duty, transgression and transgression with a propriety, my transgression, not of other men's sins, but my sins. I said I will confess my transgressions. I remember Ainsworth. He saith it should be translated thus more agreeable to the Hebrew. I will confess adversum me against myself, my transgression to the Lord. Many men that confess sin, but they do not, but they do confess sin as against God. That is, they do confess sin as if God were the author of sin. That charge him to be the patron of their impiety and of their wickedness. I said, I will confess my transgressions against myself. Fourthly, the object of this duty. I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And, and this, beloved, takes off auricular confession used and stood on much in the Church of Rome. Confession that God calls for and the Scripture calls for is in secret between God and your own souls. When conscience shall suggest guilt to you in reference to your former misdoings, when you can pour out your soul in complaint to God, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Fifthly and lastly, the issue and event of this duty. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Observe the connection. Here is a connective particle. And thou forgavest, he doth not come with an ergo or a quare, not with a causal, uh, but with an et, a copulative. And thou forgavest, not I confess sin, therefore I am forgiven, but I confess sin and thou hast forgiven me. Forgiveness of sin is not laid down as an effect flowing from a cause, but as a consequent flowing from an antecedent. Indeed, indeed, the papists plead much for merit, because sometimes causal particles are used, but this is beyond my text. Thus much for the explaining of the words. At this time, I shall only raise a doctrine from the first part of this text. I said... I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. The point of doctrine is this, that justified persons who have their sins forgiven are yet bound to confess sin to God. 
And here the confession I speak of is a private confession of our evils to God, between God and our own souls, and no otherwise. And beloved, though it be but a familiar subject, yet as God shall enable me, I shall labor to make it useful and profitable for your edification in a Christian course, in a holy confession of sin before your God. There are many queries to be dispatched in the handling of this point. First query is, what are the reasons why persons justified and pardoned are yet bound to make confession of sin unto God in private? The reasons are six. First, they are to confess sin unto God because holy confession gives a great deal of ease and holy quiet unto the mind of a sinner. Concealed and indulged guilt contracts horror and dread on the conscience. As wind, when it is dispersed and diffused through the air, doth little hurt, but when it is concealed in the bowels of the earth, it makes ruptures and earthquakes, overthrows things up and down. Sin, when it is unconfessed, concealed, and indulged, makes heartquakes in the conscience and contracts a great deal of horror and terror. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Meaning, when I kept close my sin, he roared by reason of horror. When he did not pour out his soul in confession to God, but when a man shall with an ingenuous clear con- uh, clearness confess his evils unto God, this doth alleviate his mind and lighten his burdens and ease his conscience and quiet his spirit. Origen doth call confession of sin to God the soul's spiritual vomit. Now you know, vomiting doth give ease to a burdened stomach. When the stomach is pained and burdened and oppressed, a man is sick at the heart when meat doth not digest. The vomiting of the load off of the stomach doth ease the stomach, so saith Origen. That when the conscience is burdened, when a man's spirit is troubled, pouring out of complaints and confession to God doth ease the mind. A sinner is like a vessel of new wine filled and, and stopped up close until it uh, hath vent, it is ready to burst. So is a godly man filled with sin till he can vent by confession to God, ready to burst. Psalm 119, verse 25, My soul cleaveth unto the dust, quicken thou me according to thy word. Verse 26, I have declared my ways, and thou heardest me, teach me thy statutes. As if he should have said, My soul cleaves to the dust, I am in a very low and sad condition, but I have declared my ways, I have confessed my sins, then God heard me, then I had peace, then I had quiet, then I had comfort. That is the first reason, secret confession to God. It doth give a great deal of ease and holy quiet to the mind. A second reason why justified persons must confess sin is because God loves to hear the complaints and the confessions of his own people. Lying on the face of the best gesture and the mourning weed, the best garment that God is well pleased with. Jeremiah 31, verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. 
that is, confessing his sins unto God. Canticle verse, Canticle 2, verse 14. <clears throat> o my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the, of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. God delights to see and hear the complaints and the confessions of his servants unto him. God had rather see men come with ropes about their necks and with sackcloth about their loins by a humble confession than to see ornaments about their necks by a self-justification. Christ loves to hear and see the mourning condition of a justified person. A third reason why justified persons must confess sin to God is because confession of sin doth help to quicken the heart to strong and earnest supplication to God. Psalm 32, verse 6, For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely, in the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. Confession quickens supplication. In Daniel 9, verse 20, and whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Confession is to the soul as the whetstone is to the knife. It sharpens it and puts an edge upon it. So doth confession of sin. Confessing thy evils to God doth sharpen and put an edge on thy supplications. That man will pray, but faintly that doth confess sin, but slightly. Solemn and secret confessions of thy evils unto God doth greatly help to quicken strong supplications in thy heart unto God. A fourth reason why justified persons must confess sin unto God is because confession of sin will work a holy contrition and a godly sorrow in the heart. Psalm 38, verse 18 for I will declare mine iniquities. I will be sorry for my sin. Declaration doth work compunction. Confession of sin is but the causing of sin to recoil on the conscience, which causeth blushing and shame of face and grief of heart. A fifth reason why justified persons must confess sin unto God is because their secret confession of sin doth give a great deal of glory to God. It gives glory to God's justice. I do confess sin and do confess God and justice may damn me for my sin. It gives glory to God's mercy. I confess sin, yet mercy may save me. It gives glory to God's omnisciency. In confessing sin, I do acknowledge that God knoweth my sin. Confession of sin gives glory to God. Joshua seven nineteen, And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. It is a giving glory unto God. A sixth reason why justified persons must confess sin unto God is because holy confession of sin will embitter sin and endear Christ to them. When a man shall let sin recoil on his conscience by a confession, these, after reflections and these, after recollections of sin, do greatly embitter sin and do endear Jesus 
Christ. The stronger desires that a sinner hath after Jesus Christ, the more he doth enhance the price of Jesus Christ, and thus much for the first query, to wit, the reasons of the point. The second query is, but when is a man in the best plight to have freedom of spirit, to make secret confession of sin unto God? I will name but three seasons. First, when God doth bring a believer under some grievous outward affliction, then is a fit time for him to confess sin to God. A saying of Gregory, sins do blind the eyes of men when they sin, yet those eyes come to be opened by the punishment. The punishment openeth those eyes which the fact hath shut. As you read of Joseph's brethren, they did remain twenty years without having conscience recoil on themselves to confess their evils in selling their brother Joseph. But when Joseph laid them in a prison, then they confessed their evil. Genesis 42.21 And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. It may be now that thou art in health, thou dost not now confess thy uncleanness, and thy drunkenness, and thy pride, and thy profaneness. But what wilt thou do when God brings thee on a deathbed? When God hedges in thy ways with thorns, the conscience will reflect on thee and suggest guilt to thee and draw out confession from thee. It is a fit season when God doth bring a man under any outward affliction, then he is in good plight to confess sin. It is worth your notice in the 38th Psalm, it was made when David lay on his sickbed, as he thought, his deathbed, you shall find it is a complaint of a very strong disease, David lay under. In the third verse, there is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. Here he was lying on a sickbed, and interpreters say that he made this psalm when he was sick. It is worth your notice of the title that David gives this psalm, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. David, when he was on his deathbed, as he thought, he said it shall be a psalm of remembrance, to bring sin to remembrance, uh, to confess to God my uncleanness with Bathsheba, to bring to my remembrance the evils of my life. It was a good plight David was in when he lay on his sick bed. He would make this title of the psalm a psalm to call to remembrance. Men are in a, a fit plight to make confession to God when they lie under any bodily sickness. Call to remembrance thy pride. Call to remembrance thy passion. Call to remembrance thy vain dalliance. Whatever thy sin be, it may be, I may not be hit. I may not hit of it, but whenever God brings thee under affliction, thou art then in a fit plight for to confess sin to God and call to remembrance thy sins. As it was with Jonah, chapter 1, Jeremiah 2, verse 24. 
a wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure in her occasion who can turn her away. All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they shall find her. The men of Israel are there compared to an ass, an unruly creature that runs up and down the wilderness and kicks up the heel. But saith God, though men weary themselves to take her, yet in her month they shall take her. That is when she brings forth young, then they shall take her. Referring it to the people of Israel, they in their prosperity would not be ruled. But when they were in their in their month, in their captivity, in their sufferings, then they should take them. And they would then come to uh, be more pliant in confessing their guilt more to God than in a uh, former time. A second season, wherein a man is in a good plight to confess sin, is when the conscience of a man is set in office by God to pursue him with clear and with strong accusations. When God puts the conscience of a man in office to pursue him with strong accusations, touching evils he hath committed, then that man is in a fit plight if he will take hold of it. Even Judas himself, when conscience awakened him, went and confessed to the high priest and the scribes, and said, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. If Judas took advantage so much upon the awakening of conscience to confess sin, then a believer hath much more help. Beloved, the main use of conscience in man is to bring him upon his knees, to make him humble in the confession of his ways. Conscience serves to excuse me when I do well, but the main use of conscience is to accuse me when I do ill, and so to put me on confession to God. Therefore, Mark saith David, I roared all the day. There was the noise of David's conscience for his adultery. Then I said, I will confess my transgressions. When conscience roars by accusation, then let the heart confess to God. I do earnestly beg you to take these fit seasons... You are in a good plight to confess sin when God doth lay you under afflictions, when God doth make conscience accuse you, that you do uh, deceive in your trades, and that are engulfed under in, under lust. Oh, then pursue these accusations of conscience. Then you are in a fit plight to confess sin to God. A third season, wherein a man is in a good plight to confess sin to God, is when God sets home the reproof of the ministers of the word upon the soul with conviction. Thus you know David in Second Samuel twelve thirteen, And David saith, said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Saith Nathan to David, Thou art the man. The reproof of Nathan's ministry did so prevail on David's heart that David said, I have sinned and have done very foolishly. Could you go home after every sermon you hear, whenever you hear your sins reproved, and pursue that reproof and and bless God that the word hath checked you, that the word hath met you, that the word hath found you out as an enemy. Could you go home and pursue a ministerial reproof with confession? your hearts would then be in a good plight to confess sin unto God. The application, first see hence that not only condemned malefactors, not only damned men must confess sin, but regenerate men 
pardoned men. It is no servile, no slavish, no legal work, though the lowest believer be above the power of sin, yet the, the highest believer is not above confession of sin, because not above the practice of sin. As long as men continue acting of sin, men must never leave confessing of sin. As long as sin leaks into thy soul, thou must so long be pumping by confession uh, to the soul as a pump to the ship. Oh, what leaks into thy heart by heedlessness and carelessness, pump out by confession, till thou art above the actings of sin. Thou art not above the confessing of sin. As long as the, as the body natural doth gather corrupt humors, so long there must be purges and vomits. If the body should still be gathering corrupt humors, nature would be uh, stifled by these humors. Thou art gathering sin to sin. Thou art adding iniquity to iniquity. Confession is a spiritual purge. It doth cleanse and purge the heart. See, therefore, the great need that pardoned men have to confess their faults. Secondly, when the scripture saith that justified persons must confess sin, take notice that every confession of sin will not serve men's turns. Laurinus observes out of Bernard on these words, I confess my transgressions. Saul made the same confession that David made when Nathan reproved David. Says David, I have sinned. When Samuel reproved Saul, saith Saul, I have sinned. Here is the same confession. But here was not the same event. David said, I have sinned. And Nathan said, The Lord hath taken away thy iniquity. But Saul said, I have sinned too. But David, but Samuel told him, The Lord hath taken away thy kingdom from thee. Saul confessed sin, yet had his kingdom taken away. But David confessed sin and had his sin taken away. Beloved, thou mayest confess sin with Saul, yet not have thy sin taken away. Thou mayest lose thy soul as he lost his kingdom, though he confessed his sin. The third query is this. What the theological rules may be given to guide you in, the, in your confession of sin to God? The answer, there are seven rules which I shall lay down to you. First rule in confession of sin unto God is this. Single out some bosom and master lust that doth most frequently enslave thee, and make confession and complaints against that to God. Do not only confess sin in the lump in general, but single out the most beloved lust, those sins which for the present do most subject and enslave thy spirit, which do most overcome thee and prevail over thee in thy Christian course. Against those thou shouldst bend most of thy complaints and confessions. This wisdom God's people of old did express. They singled out the present corruptions that they were guilty of. Judges 10.10 And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. We have sinned, there is a general complaint, but we have also served Balaam. They singled out their idolatry more especially. 1 Samuel 12.19 And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil. To ask us a king. 
They were not contented with their old government, but they would alter and change it. That sin being their particular sin they were guilty of, they would single out that sin. Thus, the first Chronicles 21.17, And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? He singles out a particular sin that he then lay under the guilt of. I may say to you, as the king of Assyria said to the 32 captains, Fight neither against small nor great, but against the king of Israel. So bend your confession, not against small or great only, but against thy kingly lusts, against thy captain lusts, that do most tend uh, to thy constitution. Single out them and combat against them, and bend most of thy confessions and complaints against them. Do as men in the garrison, and though they watch all the battlements and guard every passage yet, uh, to that place where the breach is made widest and where the storm is most hot, they will bend most of their strength. Do thou thus watch every sin and watch every failing of thy life, but bend most of thy confession to God against those lusts that do most enslave and subject thee. A second rule to guide thee in the matter of confession of sin to God is this. Make conscience to confess your small and secret evils as well as your open and your grosser sins. Our secret sins, saith the prophet, are in the light of thy countenance. Psalm 90, verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Psalm 19:12. Who can understand his errors, cleanse thou me from secret faults. David did not only confess his murder of Uriah, his adultery with Bathsheba, but he confessed smaller sins. David's heart smote him for cutting off the lap of Saul's garment. It was only the appearance of revenge. He had his knife near his throat. That which had the appearance of a sin, David's heart smote him for. Conscientious men uh, do not only bewail and confess open and grosser evils, but the secret and the smallest corruptions of thy heart they bewail (coughs) to God. They confess their secret pride, their secret worldliness, and secret murmurings against God. They confess their secret and smaller evils. Indeed, wicked men fall short of this. Wicked men confess their gross and their open sins, but do not take notice of their lesser and secret evils. There are two instances for this. One is in Cain. Cain confessed his murder. His sin was greater than it could be forgiven, speaking of the murder of his brother, Abel. Genesis 4.13, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. He did not confess his enmity that made him murder his brother. He confessed his gross sin, but did not confess uh, the more sly and secret evils. Thus you read likewise of Judas. Judas confessed his betraying of Christ, a gross sin, but he never confessed his covetousness, a secret sin that made him betray Jesus Christ. Saith he, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. He that did bewail and confess his murder and betraying Christ did not confess and bewail his covetousness and hypocrisy that were more lurking and secret evils. That is the second rule. Make conscience to confess small 
and secret evils as well as open and grosser sins. Third rule touching confession of sin unto God is this. When you confess and acknowledge secretly your sins unto God, labor to greaten your sins with all the heinous circumstances and heart-humbling aggravations you can imagine. And thus the servants of God used to do when they confessed sin unto God, they would confess sin with all the heinous circumstances. 1 Kings 8.47, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely. We have committed wickedness. Saith Laurinus, Mark what a heap of words a heart-humbled soul will lay together in confessing of sin. We have sinned. There is one word, we I, we have done wickedly. There is a second. And we have done perversely. There is a third. A notable instance you have of Paul in Acts 26, 10 and 11. Which thing also I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I uh, punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Here Paul comes to aggravate his sin. There are eight aggravations that here Paul doth lay down of a sin, whereby he would greaten sin unto himself, that he might be the more humble. First of all, they were not ordinary men that he cast into prison, but they were saints. And to wrong them is a sacrilege. The saints have I cast in prison. Secondly, to cast a man into prison for debt is no injustice if the man is be able to pay, but many I have cast into prison. Why? For professing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Merely per- for professing Christ. Thirdly, if it had been but one or two saints, it were not much, but they were a great number. Many of the saints did I cast into prison. Fourthly, he aggravates his sin further to cast them into prison and to give them in prison. Liberty is not much, but he shut them up in prison and kept them close prisoners. Fifthly, if he had rested there, it had not been much, but he gave his voice against them to put them to death. Nay, sixthly, he goeth higher, for he did wrong to their souls too, for he compelled them to blaspheme God. Seventhly, to aggravate it further, he was mad against them. And I was exceedingly mad against them. He was mad with rage, mad with passion, and with fury against the saints of God. Eighthly, I did persecute them to strange cities. Them I did not uh, kill. I made them leave their wives and children and made them run and shift for their lives into strange corners. This is the nature of a true... Uh, penitent, not to confess sin slightly and carelessly, but in confession of sin, to clothe his sins with all the aggravations that can be. And this is a good rule if you if you will follow it. You have the like instance in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 5. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Verse 6, Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. 
There are seven circumstances that Daniel useth in confessing of his sin to aggravate his sin. How doth Daniel clothe his confession? First, we have sinned. There is one. Secondly, we have committed iniquity. Thirdly, we have done wickedly. Fourthly, we have rebelled against thee. Fifthly, we have departed from thy precepts. Sixthly, we have not hearkened unto thy servants. Seventhly, nor we, nor our princes, nor all the people of the land. There are seven aggravations which Daniel reckoneth up to his confession. That is a third rule about confession. Fourth rule in confession of sin is this. In your confessions, look not discouragingly on God as an angry judge, but hopefully as on a displeased father. To confess sin to God as an angry judge is to make you but condemned malefactors in your confessions. Therefore, make confession to God only as a displeased father. Converted men do confess sin to God as a father. Whilst you have an eye of of sorrow upon sin, you are to have an eye of hope upon pardon. Thus God's people did in their confessions. To confess sin to God as a, as a judge is to howl like dogs because you have been beat, you shall be beaten. But to confess sin to God as an angry father is childlike, with a fiducial confidence of pardon. Daniel 9, 9, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And thus Shechaniah confesseth sin unto God, Ezra 10.2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, etc. And thus the prodigal in Luke 18.18, I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Though he was a prodigal, yet he would go to God as to a father, In confession, you are to go to God hopefully, as to a displeased father. Confessions, when they come to God as a judge, create fear, horror, and amazement on the conscience. But when confessions are mingled with hope and come to God as a father, they work a holy brokenness of heart, a holy tenderness and remorse on the conscience. A fifth rule in Confession of sin unto God is this. Content not yourselves with slight and superficial confessions of sin unto God, but leave not confession until you find sorrow for sin. Psalm thirty-eight, eighteen. For I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. Daniel 9, 8. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. We blush and are not ashamed, uh, and are ashamed to look up. Leave not confessing of sin until shame hath filled your face and sorrow hath filled your heart. It is a great fault in many people if they confess their sin and crying God mercy, crying God's mercy in a general way, uh, they think they have made God a compensation for all the injuries they have done him, though they never have any godly sorrow for their sins. But, beloved, you are not to content yourselves with such confession. A sixth rule in confession of sin is this. If thou findest thy heart straightened in confessing present guilt, 
and present sins upon thee, then labor to review and recollect ancient guilt and ancient sins. This is a very useful thing in a man's Christian course. May be a man or woman professing Christianity may not know the sins he or she hath done this last week for want of heedfulness and observation of their ways. In that case, let them recollect what they have done many years ago. Recollect old sins when new sins do not come to remembrance, and be humbled for them. As thus David did in Psalm 51.3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It was meant his old sin of adultery. That was his sin that he would now call to remembrance. So when he found his heart, he saith, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. He would go so far back as his youth. I prescribe this rule, not that a godly man who is under trouble of mind should take this course to recollect old sins. This may lead him to despair. But in case of barrenness, if any man wants matter in respect of present sins and finds his heart hard and very insensible in secret prayer unto God, in that case, he is bound to let conscience recoil upon himself and recollect sins of past years, go back as far as his youth, and see what conscience will bring in to provoke him to make humble confession unto God in his secret retirements. And lastly, take this rule. Take more freedom in confession of sin in secret before God than in public before men. To provoke you to practice this rule, consider two things. First, it is not fit to confess all the evils you have done before men. And if there were no argument to prove secret prayer, this was this was enough, that it is not fit for a man to confess all the sins of his life before men. Zechariah 12.12, 12, And the land shall mourn every family apart, family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, etc., they are to go to God and confess their sins apart. Thou art a poor professor that dost uh, confess what thou confessest in public only, and never in private. Thou art but a barren professor. Again, consider this, that though we read of wicked men that have made great confessions of sin unto God, yet we never read in Scripture that wicked men ever made conscience to confess uh, sin to God in secret. Pharaoh, you know the story, confessed his sin to Moses and to Aaron, but we never read that Pharaoh confessed his sin unto God. Exodus 9.27 The Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time, etc. Saul confessed his sin unto Samuel, but we never read of his confessing sin unto God. 1 Samuel 15.24 And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, etc. Judas confessed his sin, but to whom was it? To the high priest and to the Pharisees. But Judas never went into a corner and in secret to bewail bloodshed. Wicked men have made public confessions of sin, but never in secret. Uh, but in secret between God and their own souls, they never made acknowledgement and confession of their evils unto God. Thus much for the third query. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at puritandownloads.com.
It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.